We talk a lot about church in uh, our world, something that most people have a perception about or some kind of idea about, and I wonder what pops into your head when you think about church. Um, What we're going to do tonight is look at this idea of church and try to ask a few questions about it as we move on in our study of the book of Ephesians, what we're calling the Brave New World. Uh, Up to this point, we have looked at the resurrected, restored, reconciled new humanity in the Messiah that Paul's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2 and really expositing more and more in chapter 2. The fact that we were rescued by grace, that we were made alive, that whole idea of being resurrected, put back into our place in the whole creation, uh, ruling and reigning in the Messiah, and then reconciled as we looked at last week. Jew and Gentile brought together in one new humanity through the cross. This is the picture that Paul is providing of the church. The people of God. Those Paul refers to as the saints. Those set apart by God for his work in the world. And that becomes in our subject now as we look to a more autobiographical passage in chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. Where Paul basically says, look, I've been entrusted with this mystery. Well, he starts to say, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And you think he's going to start to pray for them. But it takes him 13 verses to get to the prayer, which we'll look at the next time. And he sort of breaks it off and begins to give some insights into the way he views his own ministry and his relationship to the church as well. And so it's this text where... Um, Paul says, look, I was entrusted with a mystery, a revelation. God gave me grace so that I could see into this mystery, which is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, members of one body, heirs to the promise, verse 6. And he says, I wasn't just entrusted with this to kind of enjoy it myself, but I was entrusted with this to go and to proclaim it to all of you. And so he says that I, I, I then became a minister of the gospel, verse 7, and I I was sent out to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 8, verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So he says, look, I came to give this mystery away, to begin to reveal it and to bring it to the light. And he says he did this so that, verse 10, which we'll get to a bit later, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, be now be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I was entrusted with a grace, a mystery. The mystery is the two humanities up to this point, the great dividing wall that we looked at last week between Jew and Gentile, that those two humanities would be brought back together in one man in the Messiah. To have one new humanity, one new resurrected, restored, reconciled humanity. In order that, he says in verse 10, the wisdom of God would be made known to the world. So in these verses, what I'd like to do is look at three things about the relationship of the church, first, to time and history. The relationship of the church then also to the world. And the relation of the church and our lives. And what we'll see in the midst of this is that for all of the fact that you probably drove by ten churches to get here. And you're now sitting in what we call church. And you have a lot of things that we think about. All of us do when we think of the word church. 
that this new work that God is doing, which we represent, if you were just to look around for a moment, is something that is climactic, critical, and costly in relation to time, the world, and our own lives. So that's what I want to unpack. The first thing is the church and time and history. Paul says in verse 11 that all of this, as he's just described, was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a sense in which time is moving. And what Paul says is when we get to Jesus the Messiah, we get to the climax. So chapter 1, verse 10, we've talked about this plan for the fullness of time. We've brought that up several times, that that God would reconcile all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in the Messiah. Then we get to the passage we looked at last week, and Paul says, you Gentiles, you were off, alienated, distant, removed. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, there's a sense of of time coming to its fulfillment. But now, or in verse 5 of the section we're looking at tonight, Paul talks about this mystery and he says, it has now been revealed to his holy prophets and the apostles. Or in verse 10, he says that the, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities. In our gospel reading that Sam read for us earlier, Jesus says, my hour has come. This turning moment of time. Galatians 4.4, Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To accomplish this great purpose of bringing together Jew and Gentile in one new humanity. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when uh, Adam and Eve had fallen in the garden and the curse is being given to the serpent. And he says, you shall bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. God's commitment to make something new out of the mess that had been made from Adam and Eve in the garden. Which then goes forward into Abraham when God promises to Abraham, look, through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. Or then he says to David in 2 Samuel 7 that one from your, your, uh, your descendants will sit on the throne forever. In Psalm 72, that one, that one from David's line is said to be good news for all the nations, that all the nations will call him blessed. There is then in the whole thrust of of time as it's understood through the biblical witness, particularly the Old Testament, that God is moving forward to something great. Something that will bring in far more people than just the chosen people of Israel. It's too light a thing in Isaiah 49 that my servant would just be a light to you, O, O Israel, but I'll make him a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And that that story is moving forward. And what Paul says about the church, about this entity that you and I are a part of, is that this is the climax of all of history. That this thing that the Jews were looking forward to, this day when God would do something new and full and complete, had come about. Claire, you saw my youngest daughter running back for her water bottle and then back um, tonight. Claire... Uh, is, as many children do, thinking a lot right now about her birthday, which is coming up in about a month and a half. But she's been asking, when is my birthday for the last three or four months? Is it next week? Is it next month? Um, and, and a lot of times she gets confused, but she's just excited that everything's kind of moving forward to this one big moment for her. 
And in a lot of ways, what Paul is saying is that, look, this thing called the church, this resurrected, restored, reconciled humanity, this is the thing that we've all been looking forward to, that all of time was moving toward, and it's arrived in the Messiah, this one humanity. We've been calling it the brave new world. Remember Paul's writing from prison. We'll come back to that. But what an audacious claim to make that somehow through the Messiah Jesus that there is a new humanity being created again by the power of God's spirit. That is the beginning of a whole new vision of a better world. But that's exactly what he's saying. This is a huge deal. And what this does is this this sense of the church as the climax of history. This sense of a one new humanity as the climax of history. Is it relativizes all other claims to what will be the climax. Or what is the answer for the better world. So in Paul's day, that was coming through Rome and through Caesar's empire. That through this empire, and if you listen to some of the poets write about Augustus and the reign that he would bring and the peace that he would bring, there was very much a storied, a storied understanding of time that was reaching its fulfillment right in Paul's day. And this claim that what's happened in the church, in the formation of a new humanity, is the beginning of the brave new world, relativizes every other claim, including the Enlightenment's claim, for example, that we would conquer nature through reason and find ourselves then into a certain kind of utopia. Or any other kind of competing claim that this coming moment is going to make all the difference. What we say in the church is, no, 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 the coming moment has already come. And it was a huge deal. And everything in my life makes sense and coheres around what's already happened and what is beginning, what is now expanding and what will come to consummation and completion down the road. Meaning that one of the things in terms of application of this idea of the climax, the church being the climax of history or time, is that we're not in the church spending our time looking for that next latest and greatest thing or innovation or plan or hope. To fix everything that's wrong. On a personal level or even on a corporate level. But that we understand that it's already come. But now. When the time had fully come. Now. This brave new world is being proclaimed and made known. So that's the climactic element. The second thing in the church and the world. And I want to go back to verse 10. And talk about the critical nature of the church as Paul understands it. So that through the church, Paul writes, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is, this reconciled, restored, resurrected, renewed humanity of Jew plus Gentile. Of these things that were once separated and pushed apart and divided. The coming together of these two things underneath the Messiah, Jesus as Lord, declares to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, and we'll, we'll, let me say something about that, the manifold wisdom of God, the variegated wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God, like a prism with all these rainbow colors coming out of it, 
the beauty of the, the multicolored nature, the multidimension nature of God's wisdom to the world. Now, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We've talked before about the fact that Paul understood that there were spiritual powers. We see this throughout the book of Ephesians, but also throughout all of his writings. At work in the heavenly realms, that they were working out their evil purposes. Oftentimes through human beings and institutions. And so this isn't simply declaring to the spiritual realm, but it's also declaring to the human realm that is, in many ways, the puppets of the spiritual realm of those evil powers. Think, for example, of Rome and Caesar, obviously, in Paul's day. What Paul's saying is that through this ragtag group of, of, of rich and poor, of men and women, of slaves and free, of Jew and Gentile being brought together in the Messiah, that what this group is declaring to those authorities and rulers in both the heavenly realms and to Caesar, the Lord of the current day, is that there is a new king running around and his name is Jesus. And that he has real power to bring about peace through the death, through his death on the cross. And this new entity, this new humanity, as it lives its life out, makes that declaration. Primarily through two attributes. The first one, holiness. 221 last week, that we're being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. We mentioned something about that last week. And the second one of unity, the fact that the mystery that's been revealed is that the Jew has, or the Gentile, is a fellow heir, members of the same body, and partakers of the the promise in Christ Jesus. So it's this new holy and unified people that's feasting on the riches of Christ, as Paul says in verse 8. That his purpose was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if you go back a month and a half or two months ago and you'll think about every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, you see something in that opening prayer of of one sentence that goes on and on of the riches of Christ that's been given to his people. It's this holy and unified people feasting on the riches of Jesus that declares to the world the manifold wisdom of God. The beautiful beauty of the new creation, reconciled, restored. Now moving forward, not with might, not with injustice, not with duplicity, not with falsehood, but in righteousness, in truth, in love, in gentleness, in humility, in patience, in peace. As we move forward in this way, then we say no to all the other wisdoms on offer. If you go by big cities, the the money of New York City, no. The power of Washington, D.C., no. The fame of L.A., no. The intellect and the knowledge of Boston, no. Jesus is Lord and King. We have life in the full. The riches already And so the call in verse 10 is interesting because this isn't just the church proclaiming and it's not the church doing social action. What Paul is saying here is what declares this manifold wisdom of God is simply the existence of this new entity of Jew and Gentile united in the Messiah in love. 
which is to say that the call upon us as the people of God is simply to celebrate and give expression to this new life that we've been invited into as God's people. To live out our new existence in the Messiah. And here's where this becomes so important and critical as we think about it personally in our own lives. The call here is not to conform. Think about the role that God has given us as the church. To declare his wisdom to the watching world. The call upon your life and upon mine to pursue a life that isn't conforming to the patterns of this world, but is being renewed, transformed by the renewal of our mind. To live a life of holiness in our day-to-day lives. To walk in truth. To walk in humility. To walk in love. To bear with the burdens of another. To bear with the hard neighbor, the hard person, the person in this room that you don't like very much. To live with them. To be uh, reconciled to them. To walk with them. That as we go about and do this, God's wisdom is being declared to the rulers and the authorities. Paul writes all of his letters because of how critical this role of the church is in God's economy and exhorts us again and again to walk in holiness and to walk in unity as his people. So much is at stake in this for us as a body. So it's a climactic reality, the church, in terms of time and history It's a critical entity in terms of God's purposes in declaring his wisdom to the rulers and authorities and the powers in the heavenly places and in the earthly representations. And finally, it's costly. The church is costly. It's some, it's some, it, you know, often we can think about the church as just a group of people uh, like we have gathered here that has maybe a cool website and some interesting gatherings and some things like that. And we can sit really loose on it in many ways. But what this passage shows us is that the church is deeply costly. And I'm not speaking about the deepest cost, which is simply Jesus' own death for the sake of the church. This church is only founded on the fact that Jesus gave up his life, and that's the greatest cost. But I'm speaking of it in terms of Paul's own witness here. He says in verse 1 that he's in prison. And he says in verse 13 at the end of the passage, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. Paul knows he's been entrusted with a grace and he says that grace was given given to me to serve you, to be for you, to lay my life down for you and to be faithful to this witness. And as he did that, and particularly as he spoke of Jew and Gentile coming together, he went to Jerusalem and he was oppressed and he was um, persecuted because of this proclamation of one new family. And so he became in, in, enslaved or he became uh, imprisoned and then passed on from person to person on his way to Rome. And that's when he's writing this letter. And if we look at Paul as an example for our own lives, This call to serve the church isn't just Paul's, though that comes out very clearly here. But it's also ours. All Saints Day was yesterday. We remember those who have run the race before us. Tertullian's famous words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Remind us of the cost. 
as we look back at Polycarp or even way back at Stephen, for example, Acts chapter 7. Cyprian, moving up to the 20th century, Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliot. There's a history of costly witness for the sake of the church, for the sake of the witness. And when we think about our own lives, I'm not sure if any of us will be called to pay with our lives, but we are called to begin to use the gifts, the stewardship, the grace that's been entrusted to us, as Paul will go on in chapter 4 and beyond, to serve this church, to lay our life down for the body in love, to walk in love, Paul says, as Christ loved us. 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. Little children, let us not love with words or with words and tongue, but with actions and in truth. There's a cost to this brave new world, to this new humanity. And as we take up our cross and lay our lives down for one another, there is a cost. But Paul also says, as he says this in verse 12, that there's also a privilege. And he goes back to something he had affirmed before. He talks about that in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him to approach the throne of grace. We have access to the Father. That is, even though that there is a cost There's a far greater reward and privilege, which are these riches, these unsearchable riches of life in Jesus and of access to the God who literally speaks the world into being. You and I can speak to him now. We have access to him, to his presence, to his protection, to his provision, to his grace. So look around. This is the church. This is the big deal. There's nothing bigger coming. This is a critical reality through which God wants to display his wisdom to the world as we embrace one another in unity and as we walk in holiness together. And this does have a cost beginning with Jesus, seeing that in Paul here in prison, but moving forward in each one of us, but a far greater reward, access to the God of life. Amen.